0: Well, this morning, let's focus our attention on the book of Acts. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. So we come to the conclusion message in our series, Through the Wicked Gate. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. When you find it, please stand with me as we read from God's holy word. This is Luke writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him come, saw him go into heaven let's pray father we ask right now that you through your words would speak clearly to us that we might hear and understand that we might be changed by your word and we ask this in Jesus name amen you may be seated have you ever heard a song that takes you back to a particular time or setting in your life I mean, I can think of just like a handful of songs. You hear them on the radio or something like that. It takes you back somewhere you were, something that was happening. I mean, I think for myself, the song Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, some of you laughing, maybe you have a different story, but it takes me back, takes me back to a bunk bed with animal crackers as a child. And it was a very innocent song. Maybe not for some of you, but Puff the Magic Dragon. I think of Don't Take the Girl. By uh, Tim McGraw, takes me back to middle school romance, you know, where you really thought that was the one. When I was a kid, every Friday, my mom would take us to this roller rink, and um, it was where all the cool kids were gathering on Fridays that didn't go to school, you know, the homeschooled crowd. We would go hang out with all of these other homeschoolers in St. Louis, and there we were and they would play Christian music. I mean, it was amazing, right? It was like the best thing, you know, that you could possibly imagine. Here, all of us kids who, you know, struggled with, you know, personal communication skills, all gathered into one place, rolling around a rink together. And and they would play Christian music, and, and they would play some of the greatest songs. But I remember there's this one song that every time I hear it, it makes me think of that roller rink. Makes me think of the roller rink. And it's a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And the song is called For the Sake of the Call. Now, I don't think I really understood the song or even really listened to the lyrics when I was trying trying to skate. But thinking back about that song, the lyrics are so powerful. So powerful. And they're really powerful for us today as we look at this text In Acts chapter 1, listen to how Chapman begins this song. He says, nobody stood and applauded them. So they knew from the start that this road would not lead to fame. It says, all they really knew for sure was Jesus had called them. And he said, come, follow me. And they came with reckless abandon. In the next verse, he says, drawn like the rivers are drawn to the sea. There's no turning back for the water cannot help but flow. Once we hear the Savior's call, we'll follow wherever he leads because of the love that he has shown. And because he has called us to go, he says, we will answer. We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. Jesus has called each and every one of us into a life of discipleship. And we've been spending, well, the last four months focusing on that very issue. Discipleship. What does it mean? How is it seen through Scripture? What does it cost us, this discipleship? But it's as if every single one of us in this room were standing or kneeling on that shore, mending our nets... And Jesus has walked by. And when he walked by, he looked at you and he said, come, follow me. Now, our shore, our nets look a little bit different. Each one of us, maybe we have a different story altogether. Maybe, maybe our story is, is different from the person that we're sitting next to. But maybe you were, you were standing with your friends at a youth camp and Jesus said, come and follow me. And you answered that call. Maybe maybe you were wiping the tears away from your face because of a family tragedy, but you heard the voice of Jesus in the midst of it, and he said, Come, follow me, and you answered the call. Maybe you were kneeling with your mother at the foot of your bed as a child, and you heard that call, and you answered it. Or maybe you were here in this church, sitting on the front pew, and you heard that call, and you answered it. And Jesus said, Follow me. Over the past four months, we've looked at this idea of discipleship. We began our study by looking at that gate. You remember? It was a long time ago. We looked at a gate, and the gate was a narrow gate that Jesus talked about. And the path that led, that led from that gate was, was a hard path. And he, he, he contrasted those two. Right There was the wide gate, and there was this really easy, very uh, comforting kind of path. And he said, that's the way that will lead to death. He says, don't take that way. That's not the way to discipleship. The way through the narrow gate, that's the way that leads to life. And that's how discipleship begins. He looked at Peter's experience with Jesus in the fishing boat, and how Peter responded to Jesus Jesus called him and said, I want you to no longer fish for fish, but I want you to fish for men. I want you to be a fisher of men. We saw Peter's unwavering submission to Jesus. And yet he had a right perspective. He knew Jesus was, and he also knew himself that he was a sinner. We looked at Psalm 1 together. How we are to have personal devotion with God. We're to be like a tree that's planted deeply next to streams of living water. The living water is the word of God. So if you're not daily feeding, drinking from the word of God, then you're going to dry up. You're not going to bear the fruit that you need to bear. We looked at Psalm 19 together about the word of God. We looked at Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus began to teach his disciples how to pray. We learned that we should praise God. Praise God. We should we should resign ourselves to the leadership and rule of God in our hearts. We should ask God for the things that we need, spiritual and physical, and we ought to yield ourselves to whatever God's plan is. That's what prayer looks like as a disciple. Cameron led us in a message on corporate worship, and we saw that 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 worship is not just simply something that we do here on Sunday morning, but but worship is an overflow. This, this is just an overflow of what's happening throughout the week, or at least that's That's what it should be. So we come together as a united people with a united mind. We worship the Lord our God as an overflow of the things that are already happening in our hearts throughout the week. We looked at knowledge, knowing ourselves, knowing our surroundings, knowing our goal, which is Christ, Jesus. We examined John 15 and studied the importance of bearing fruit and remaining connected to Jesus Christ. And then the last time that we met together and looked at, uh, at our series, we, we focused on community. The body of Christ. Uh, you're an eye, you're a toe, you're, a, you're, you're a foot, you're a kneecap. You know, we, we're all different pieces of the same body. We all have different functions and we, we need to find out what it is that God has called you to be so that you can continue to build up the body of Christ. And then today, we close out this series by looking at Mobilization. Mission. What is our purpose? All of us. We've been called into a life of discipleship. And so what we know is that Jesus didn't just call you into a life of discipleship for no reason. He didn't call you to be a disciple, to follow him, to sit. To just once a week come into this building and sit in a pew. That's not what discipleship looks like. But he called us. He mobilized us for a mission. We have a purpose. We have a mission. And this mission... Is something that we share together, united through the Spirit of Christ. So in this first section that we'll see, in verses 1 through 3, we see that Luke recaps for us his first book. He gives kind of a, a summary of the gospel. And I want to just just note that the gospel is worth everything. Do you hear me? The gospel is worth everything. Now, sometimes I know that we don't think that it is. Or sometimes we wouldn't actually say that we don't think that it is. But we live our life in such a way that we recognize that that's not true of us. But the overarching truth is that the gospel is worth more than my life. The the gospel is worth more than your life. The gospel is worth more than all of our lives put together. And it's worth giving up everything for. Now, the truth is Jesus doesn't always call everyone to give up everything like the rich young ruler. But the truth is, he might. And the problem is, is we don't identify what it is that's holding us back from a life completely devoted to Jesus Christ and discipleship. And that is what we have to do if we're going to bear witness to him who's called us. The gospel is worth Everything. Look there at verses 1 down to verse 3. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, the first question most people ask is, Well, who in the world is Theophilus? The short answer is we don't know. There you go. Let's move on. No. Theophilus. Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus is. It's very possible that Theophilus was a friend, very close friend of Luke, that he was kind of writing these works to so that Theophilus could take care of them and make sure that they were uh they were looked after. Uh, another church father thinks that maybe or origin he thought that um that Theophilus was more of a literary device that Paul was used, or that Luke was using, uh, to to say lovers of God. So the, the word Theophilus means lover of God. So maybe he's speaking to the church as a whole, lovers of God. This is the things that uh, I want to say to you. It, it doesn't really make a difference because these words continue to flow to us in a way that is very, very helpful and transformative. But we we also understand that the Book of Acts this isn't the first volume. So have you ever picked up a book? or uh, tried to watch a movie and realized that there was a prequel, and then you were like, oh, I have no idea who these characters are, but they're acting as though I should, you know? Yeah, I've done that. That's what happens here. If you're not understanding the book of Luke, you'll get to the book of Acts and you'll be like, what is happening? There are so many things that are, uh, that are not connecting for me. Well, it's because you've got to read Luke first. He's saying this is a two-volume set. This is, this is the, the second part of the series the book of Acts makes sense only in light of the gospel. So Luke summarizes his first book in three verses. Don't you wish preachers could do that? In his first volume, he spoke of all the things that Jesus began to do, all the things that Jesus began to teach, and he reminds us of Jesus' calling of the apostles and how he presented himself to his disciples as the resurrected one. So that's what, what, that's what Luke records in that first book. Now notice that Luke says that Jesus remains with his followers for 40 days. It's really interesting. 40 days is a really significant number in the Bible. Moses received the law of God while he was on Mount Sinai. How long was he up there? 40 days. And here Jesus' disciples are receiving his word from his very mouth. For 40 days. But probably what was what is more important is that in the same way that Jesus Himself went out into the desert and was tested and prepared for his ministry for 40 days, here Jesus is with his disciples, preparing them for the launch of their ministry in the church. 40 days. We think about this gospel, and we talk about the gospel a lot at our church. But the gospel is critical. For our lives. Absolutely essential. For our lives. The death of Christ. As we talked about last Sunday. It brings about justification. It brings about restoration. It brings about renewal. It brings about resurrection. It brings about reconciliation. The the death of Jesus. Is extremely important for you and for me. He took the death. That you deserved. That I deserved. He died in our Place because we refuse to love God with every fiber of every muscle, with every synapse of our mind, Jesus died for us. He took that soiled garment that we wore around ourselves, thinking it was very pretty, very nice, smelled really good, our righteousness. He took that at the cross and he stripped it off of our shoulders and he took off his own righteous, perfect, beautiful robe and he placed it upon our shoulders and he takes ours and he puts them on himself and he climbs on a cross and he dies. Jesus has stood in our place. He took our sins so that we could take his righteousness and as a result, all of us, all of us who will trust, simply trust in what Jesus has done on the cross for our sins, we can have everlasting life. The gospel of Jesus is the only hope that this world has. It's the only hope that you and I have. And not only does the gospel through Christ save us from eternal hell on an individual level, but, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of God's complete and utter renewal and restoration of the planet. This is what God is doing through Christ. He, he's moving back the kingdom of Satan. He, after the fall in the garden, the world... The, the world began to spin out of control. Chaos everywhere. The earth trembles and shakes. Rivers flood. Waves crush villages. And the ground itself refuses to obey us. And that ancient dragon, the one in the garden, he is still at large. But this is what John says in John, 1 John 3.8. He says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus appears to push back this ancient dynasty, this evil dominion. And through Christ's death, the world is being renewed constantly. The the curse that all of us live under, Christ is gradually rolling it back with his own power. And eventually, when he returns, death itself will be reversed. He began by establishing for himself a new people. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. Jesus has accomplished this great cosmic restoration and rescue plan at the cross. And now he's beginning this work of a new people. Disciples. That's what he's making. So throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites, they continually demonstrated the fact that they were, they didn't have the ability to obey God perfectly. Every time he would tell them what to do, they would fail. They would forget the commandments. They would refuse to obey him. In fact, Moses told them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Well, talk about a motivational speech. It's like this isn't going to go well. Why? Because you have a heart problem. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, at the very first chapter, in the very first verse, Isaiah, speaking the words of Yahweh, says he calls heaven and earth to bear witness. So what happens in the book of Isaiah is he proclaims the the, the wrath of God coming down on the Israelites. He's going back to Moses' words. Look, heaven and earth, look. This is what the Lord our God says. And the reason that they couldn't obey God perfectly is because they didn't have a renewed spirit. Their minds were darkened. And though even though Yahweh's spirit resided physically with them in the camp of Israel, the people themselves, they had hard hearts. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we're looking. How is it that God is going to restore? How is it that God is going to bring about salvation? How is God going to to, to make a people that will love Him completely? And so after the Israelites are exiled, we, we find in Ezekiel Yahweh... He says this, he says, I will give you a new heart. You can't make yourself a new heart. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you. To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And so when we get to the New Testament, we see that all of the promises that God has given, all of them are coming true in Jesus Christ. We see this beautiful promise coming true in this book. As God's spirit comes within the church, the people, the apostles, Yahweh comes to save his people as he promises, but then he becomes one of us in the New Testament. Jesus puts on flesh and he dies on a cross for us. And he gives us his spirit. Now look at verse four. He says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father which he said, you heard from me, for I for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the gospel is worth everything. But as a church, we're bound together. We're baptized into one baptism. We The spirit of Christ is what binds us together. Now, over the last few months, we've been talking about discipleship, how can a people who have no real connection other than Jesus stay together? I mean, think about ourselves. Let me just look at the people around you. We're all different people. We've got different experiences, different backgrounds, different kinds of jobs. We've we got school teachers, salesmen, bankers, scientists, homemakers, store managers, long care professionals, college students, high school students, children. I mean, the diversity could go on and on. We're different people. We don't like the same television shows. We don't like to read the same kinds of books. Some people like scary movies. Same people don't like scary movies. I mean, we're all different. I mean, if we were all going to hang out together, would we all want to go play frisbee golf? Would we all want to watch football? No. We're different people. Would we all want to sit around and use fountain pens? No. We're all different. There's something that, 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 that connects all of us. That goes beyond circumstance. That goes beyond pastime. That goes beyond experience. That goes beyond where we're from or what kind of dialect of the American English we speak. It, it goes beyond all of that. It, it's something significant that ties us all together. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of us have been baptized into one spirit. Now, are we any more diligent than the ancient Israelites to obey God? No. No. We're not somehow more capable of obeying God. We're we're not better people because we're modern people and we understand things. It's not because we have iPhones. It's not because we have computers. It's not because we know a little bit more about how the world works. No! That isn't the reason that that God has a relationship with us. What makes what we're doing right now here this morning more significant than what happened on the Sinai Peninsula 4,000 years ago? It's really simple. The Spirit of God is not in a building anymore. The Spirit of God is not in a building anymore. And we have to understand this. This is not the house of God. Look around. This isn't the house of God. Do you know what is? You. You. Us. Us. We are the dwelling place of God. That's what the scripture teaches us. We are the place where God himself dwells. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is the word dwelling place in Hebrew? Tabernacle. We've been built to be tabernacles. The church is the tabernacle of God. Built on the divine revelation that we've received from the apostles and the prophets. And the scripture of God. The the scripture says that we are the house of God. So what the Israelites hope for in the book of Leviticus has come true in the church. Paul says, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty God. Friends, In the same way that God's Spirit enveloped the tabernacle in the wilderness by fire and the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem by smoke, God's Spirit has come upon his people and now dwells within each follower. Now look at what he says in verse 5. He says, You heard from me, for John baptized with fire, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So the promised Spirit was going to come upon the disciples at Pentecost. And Jesus is talking about that unique, unrepeatable event at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is is poured out in power and the disciples visibly see the tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples in that upper room. So as we think about discipleship, we have to think about it in terms of this epic change in the way that God is relating to his people. No longer is, is God's presence centered in this geographic location in Jerusalem, but rather it's, it's centered in a, in a people who will travel across the world with this life-changing news of Jesus Christ. So since this is true, we ought to examine ourselves as temples. We ought to look at ourselves very carefully. Are we holy people? Are we being purified by the Spirit's work in our life on a daily basis? Do you display the presence of God in your life? And if not, you should ask yourself why. So since we are mobile tabernacles of God's Spirit, our worship of Him cannot be confined to just this weekly gathering in a building. That's why all of the week we're to be worshiping God. Because all of the week, you're still a tabernacle. Is it just secular things that are done in a tabernacle throughout the week and only on the Sabbath day they would have service? No. Daily sacrifices were being made in the tabernacle. Daily sacrifices were being made at the temple. And daily sacrifices need to be made in your life for the glory of God. The gospel of Jesus is the foundation for our discipleship, and it's worth giving up everything for. The Spirit of Christ binds us together in perfect unity so that we can worship and focus our attention on God. And it's because of these two truths that we can fulfill the mission of God in the world. Look there at verse 6 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, we are empowered by the spirit of God to accomplish the mission. We don't have to do the mission on our own strength, by our own power. Now, when you look at verse 6, the apostles ask that question, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Sometimes we look at that question and say, what? why are we even asking that? I mean, didn't you read the rest of the New Testament, guys? That's not what he's doing. No, they didn't have the rest of the New Testament, right? So they're asking a question that seems to really make sense in their mind. The Spirit of Yahweh has not dwelt among the people for over 400 years, and, and the kingdom has been ripped away from David's line. And the the Romans have suppressed the people for centuries. And Jesus has just told them that many days from now, the Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon them. Now, of course, they're thinking about national Israel. They're thinking about this ethnic people. God is going to restore everything that they've lost. He's going to bring back the glory days. But Jesus doesn't answer their question, does he? He points them in a completely different direction because the Holy Spirit was no longer going to dwell in in a specific people group. It would no longer dwell in this ethnic tribe of Israelites empowered by God's authority, but rather God's Spirit was going to to dwell in a transnational, multicultural people, a called-out people, an ecclesia, a church. And he says, you, not the place, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now they're probably thinking of Solomon's temple. The spirit of Yahweh as he came upon Solomon's temple. It billowed with glory. It was all over the place. It was amazing. And the presence of God's spirit was centered on that temple mount. But from this time forward, the spirit of God's power would not rest in a particular place or nation or an architectural structure, but it would be in a people called out by God. The disciples were to be the true, restored Israel. And they were to bear witness of what God was doing through the gospel and through what Jesus Christ had done there on the cross. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And notice what he says there. Look look again. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my martyrs. Really. In the word in the Greek witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Sometimes I think we've used the word martyrs incorrectly. A martyr is one who witnesses to the truth with their life. And maybe all of us, we should be more like martyrs in that we give up our life for the sake of the gospel. That may not be by force, it may not be through violence, it may not be something that leads to our physical death, but we ought to daily, Jesus says, be denying ourselves completely, taking up our cross, readying ourselves for death for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the call. The mission is vast, guys. It's huge. I mean, just think about the world that we live in. Sometimes we get so focused on our own little world that we forget about the bigness of our world. There's almost there's over 7 billion people in the world. 7 billion people. 4.5 billion of those people don't even have an opportunity to hear the gospel. They've never heard the name of Jesus. There is no chance that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved from eternal destruction. billion, millions of people, thousands of people right now in this hour that we've been meeting together, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have gone into eternity without Christ. 3,800 people groups are still unengaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does God want with you? What did he save you for? Just sit there. What did he save you for? What was the reason that he he brought you to life? That he gave you this message? Paul says, he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. We are supposed to be making disciples. We're supposed to be going out into the world. We're supposed to be preaching the gospel to people that have never heard. That's the reason we study the scripture. There's a whole process. There's a reason we do what we do as a church. We come together on Sunday mornings. And we study the word of God together. Why do we do that? We're building a foundation for discipleship in our church. That's why we do that. And then we meet together in worship. So that the spirit of God can speak to us. Can transform us. To shape us. To to motivate us. To leave these doors. That's why we have these posters. As you exit Whatever way you exit, move, get out into the world. Know what our purpose is, and that's to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the good of all people. Do it. Go. Move in your life. We come back together on Sunday nights, and do you see a connection here with this verse in 18? How many groups do we have in move? Four. Four of them symbolizing the same groups that are outlined here. Close at home, J-Town, we ought to be evangelizing the people that are here in our own town. Louisville, looking out at these multicultural groups, these refugee sects here in Louisville, stretching out to North America, Israel, stretching out even then to the ends of the earth. God has called us to do this as a church. And there's like 30%, maybe 40%, of our people that are here on Sunday morning, they're actually engaged in move groups. Why? Why? Do we have something better going on in our lives than the gospel? Do we have something better going on in our lives than the mission of what God has given to us? 4.5 billion people in the world never heard Christ's name. This is the calling that we've been given Verses 9 down to verse 11. He says, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Then Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come also in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns there. Now, look what happens. These two men, probably angels, ask this question. Why are you standing here? It's almost like they're saying, did you hear what he said? Why are you looking up at the sky? And friends, maybe we need to ask ourselves the same question. Maybe we think a lot about Jesus coming back and making everything right. So we're standing up, gazing at the sky, or maybe we're just standing, gazing at the sky, uh, thinking apath- apathetically, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen the next day? What am I doing next week? You know, we're thinking about other things. But the reality is the fact that Jesus has ascended means that it's game on. It's time to work. Because when he returns, he will return to judge the living and the dead. We have a specific time frame to work right now. Everything in our lives ought to be aimed and directed at this mission. It ought to impassion us. We have to be constantly thinking about how it is that we're going to share the gospel with our neighbor. How it is that I'm going to invite them over. I'm going to befriend them because because I want them to know Christ. How it is that I'm going to share the gospel with the, the person that I work with. What kind of tools do I have available? How am I uh, reading and preparing myself to to answer questions? How am I engaging the Scriptures myself and memorizing the Word of God so that I can go to them and I can speak the words of the Gospel to them? Everything in our life ought to be focused on the Gospel. How am I going to share the Gospel with my grandkids? What kind of books am I going to read them? What kind of stories am I going to tell them? They said, why are you looking at the sky? Focus on the mission. Focus on the mission. Jesus has called for disciples. And he's calling today. How are you going to answer him, Friends, my hope is that all of us would answer with these kinds of words. Chapman says... I will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die. Not for the sake of a creed or cause. Not for a dream or a promise. Simply because it's Jesus who called. And if I believe I'll obey. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as a people. Lord, I realize that every person here in this room, Lord, we have a lot of things happening in our lives. There's a lot of activity, a lot of commitments, a lot of relationships, a lot of plans, a lot of dreams. God, I pray that this morning we would just we would submit all of that to you. That we would yield our lives to your plans. And sometimes discipleship and the things that you require of us, they really don't seem to make sense. But God, help us to trust like Peter. It's like when Jesus told him to take him out into the deep. God, we hear your voice today saying, let's go out to the deep. Let's go out where you can't touch anymore. Let's go out where you actually have to rely upon me. And Lord, would we respond in faith? We pray this in Jesus' name.